Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of February 2019 and this is episode 101. On today's programme, medical historian Dr Michael Robertson from the University of Liverpool talks about the treatment of mentally ill Irish servicemen after the Great War. I spoke to Michael from his office in Liverpool. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Before we discuss the experiences of ex-servicemen who returned to the island of Ireland after the First World War, can you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, no problem. I am a historian at University of Liverpool. Uh, my broad research at the moment is interested in the post-war experience of disabled First World War veterans across the British Empire. And like you mentioned, I was particularly interested in Ireland during a PhD and looking at what happened to shell shock veterans um, when, once they returned home. And to be honest, it was a subject that it really uh, stems from childhood. Uh, I was always interested um, at GCSE level at uh, Vietnam veterans and what happened to them when they returned home, obviously suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and this idea of a war continuing to affect the lives of servicemen in peacetime. And then as I went through my university education, I became more interested in modern Irish history. And it was during one seminar when we were talking about the Anglo-Irish War and the seminar teacher it sort of in passing mentioned that 100,000 Great War veterans were living in Ireland during this time where that IRA are taking on the British state. And immediately I just thought there was a really interesting subject here to explore further. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get funding to undertake it at master's and PhD level and just to study what happens to these men who return home from the uh, Western Front and from Gallipoli with mental health problems to return to another war zone. So why do you think this topic is worthy of study? Uh, I think it's worth it study because at its most basic level, I think it's worth uh, analysing these men and their families because they have been overlooked in public and academic conversation. And as I was going through my PhD and looking at the primary records down in London and in Dublin and in Belfast, it's quite clear that these men, uh, even though the war obviously ends um, officially with the uh, the sign of the armistice, that the war itself impacted upon the lives for decades, even into their old age and into the late 20th century. And I think at its most basic level, I think it's worth recognising this fact that for a lot of uh, veterans, especially those in receipt of a disability pension, the war wasn't just 1914 to 1918 1919, it went on well into the 20th century. And a big part of my research was also trying to ask the question, and this goes into broader historiographical debate, as to what extent did the First World War change British and Irish society? So with regards to mental illness, for example, I was looking at how the conflict demonstrates both progression and continuation of medical culture from the pre-war years and how it was shaped by the First World War. So just to give an example of what I mean, in the aftermath of the First World War, for the very first time, the British state offered compensation and medical treatment akin to what was also offered to physical disabilities. And I think it's been overlooked, but in the initial post-war years, the British state actually offered really progressive psychotherapeutic treatment, broadly akin to what we define today as talking therapy and CBT therapy. And I would argue that this is really uh, progressive and innovative, as maybe is what sometimes assumed. However, despite this progression, there's also evidence of unchanged prejudices which existed from the 19th century, which continue towards mental illness. 
even when it was deemed to be attributable to war service. And there's numerous high profile British figures who during the interwar period remain unmoved in their opinion that shell shock was due to malingering, cowardice or genetic deficiency or predisposition. And interestingly in Ireland, because of the perceived innate childlike and immature and emotional nature of the Irish uh, temperament, which stemmed again, as I mentioned, from the 19th century, you see that Ministry of Pensions officials are saying these men aren't shell-shocked, they're Irish and they're mentally ill because there's an innate uh, predisposition uh, within the biology. So it's really interesting looking at uh, mental illness and why I think it's worth it studying. What I try to argue is, is that the First World War fundamentally changes uh, mental health perception and medical culture, but also within those changes, there's also this continuation of patterns that have been evident before the First World War. To give us a broad picture um, around the subject, how many servicemen returned to the island of Ireland, the island of Ireland after 1919, and what proportion what proportion of them actually had mental health issues? Yeah, well, there's estimates that around 100,000 men returned to Ireland, um, and within with regards to mental health problems and within a UK context, in 1921, around 65,000 ex-servicemen were receiving a pension for shell shock throughout the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's obviously uh, Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland. Around 13,000, I've estimated, were residing in Ireland. And these were men who returned to civil society, albeit with a pension for a mental disability. Additionally, there was an additional category of men who were admitted into district asylums. And in 1921, there were 6,300 uh, these men who were designated as service patients with around 500 men in Irish asylums. And the difference being here is if you were a Great War veteran who required institutionalization, uh, you were in receipt of a 100% pension. And whilst you shared larger public asylums with uh, poor lunatics and the civil uh, population, you provided your own distinct clothing and extra allowances to be spent on things such as tobacco and food. So when we talk about mentally ill soldiers returning from the war, what type of conditions, symptoms and illnesses uh, did they have? Mm -hmm. Well, with regards to those uh, who required institutionalisation in an asylum, these were men who were deemed to be seriously ill with no chance of recovery and needed constant supervision and care, um, broadly recognised as being a, unable to look after themselves and a danger, possibly a danger to themselves or to people around them. With regards to those in receipt of a pension for shell shock, which was replaced by the diagnosis of neurasthenia by 1921, it was a real umbrella term. Um, it incorporated a vast variety of symptoms. And when you read through the surviving pension files, these symptoms include uh, sleeping problems, listlessness, depression, headaches, obsessive thoughts and actions, weight loss and anxiety. It's really a really vast variety of psychoneurotic conditions. Crucially, when looking at the Ministry of Pensions and the British state's treatment of them, pensions were awarded on a scale of how severe they were, judged on how your symptoms were affecting your employability. So a weekly pension could be graded at 20%, which is a pension of around eight shillings. And this was where a man, a shell-shocked man, was perceived to be in a constant threat of relapse, but nevertheless was able, with the support of domestic setup, to attain suitable employment and rehabilitation back into society. And this went all the way up to 100% pension, which was around 27 shillings. And again, this was men who were deemed to be seriously ill with no chance of recovery and needed constant supervision and care, uh, which often led to institutionalization. 
obviously when many um, First World War veterans returned to Ireland, they they found a country which was um, in a state of revolution and then obviously a state of civil war in the South. What impact did this uh, conflict have on the mental health of these veterans who returned? Well, I try and argue my research that it had a really fundamental uh, impact on the men who returned to Ireland. Um, as I mentioned, I was really surprised when I started my PhD that all the studies into shell-shock veterans had focused on Britain and there'd been no research into Ireland. And it was this idea of returning to another war zone, which just immediately gripped us. And when I was reading the records, you can quite clearly see that um, obviously the Anglo-Irish war and the war between the British states and the IRA, guerrilla warfare, it really has an impact on, even before you get to shell-shock veterans themselves, just on the daily administration of welfare care for disabled veterans. And you'll see in the correspondence of Ministry of Pensions officials, which was the department which looked after disabled veterans providing treatment and pensions, they quite clearly say time and time again that they were scared of going out on the streets, um, obviously in fear of being a victim or an accidental victim of you know, the shootouts um, that were happening between the Black and Tans or the IRC um, police and the IRA. You also see that the British government are reluctant to invest in Ireland at the time. Um, so even though waiting list figures for physical disability treatment and for psychotherapeutic treatment, which I argue was so progressive in the initial war post-war years, it's actually fairly compromised in Ireland because the British government, even from even following requests from officials in Ireland saying we need more money, we need more staff, we need more facilities, that the British government say we can't really invest in Ireland until we know what's going to happen, happen in the region. Obviously, you've got an IRA fighting for political Republican independence. And also there's evidence that shell-shocked men actually lived in fear of being targets themselves. Um, again, there's debate here amongst historians about whether British ex-servicemen who returned to Ireland were targeted exclusively because they fought in the British Army or whether they were uh, targeted um, because they were um, informers or spies for the British service. And while it's quite hard to answer this question, it's undoubted in my mind that disabled ex-servicemen who returned to Ireland certainly lived in fear of um, of IRA violence. Um, it comes up in one of the pension records I was looking at, and also men who were admitted into British military uh, medical facilities, rather, that they don't want to be discharged out of fear um, of what might happen to them on the outside. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, obviously, um, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, um, and in trauma theory in general, one thing that comes up time and time again is the need for a traumatised population or a person to recover is this idea of safety and acceptance. And without these fundamental building blocks, then recovery can be stunted. And looking at Ireland between the period of 1919 to 1921, uh, I argue that the homecoming conditions really could have had a, quite a disastrous effect on, on the psychological state. So, and how did Irish uh, society regard um, veterans coming home with mental health issues? Well, it's quite hard to uh, look at with regard to the people with mental health problems. There are instances in the records which indicates this hostility that this anti-British sentiment which affected veterans also affected the disabled veteran. So, for example, you've got um, in the initial post-war years, asylums were reluctant to admit veterans into even district asylums. And again, it was this idea that even the idea of these men being um, differentiated by the clothing could lead to problems even within the asylum itself. With regards to disabled veterans, 
the records indicate time and time again that employees are reluctant to take on British ex-servicemen, even if they're disabled, not only because of their own political allegiance, but also, which appears more prevalent, is fear of upsetting people already on the payroll. This idea that you know the political discourse in Ireland between the Ireland men, Irish men, largely left in 1914 and 1915 is very different to the one they returned to, and it's this idea that the home they left is very different to the one they returned to in nationalist Southern Ireland, and you get a sense that they really struggled um, to retain employment, uh, appreciation, um, and sort of just recognition in general. And what's really interesting in the in the north of Ireland, which obviously was affected by a volatile uh, socio-political context. What the main shell shock hospital there, uh, the vast majority of Catholic patients actually discharged themselves against the uh, advice of the medical superintendent after they'd received death threats, um, sectarian death threats during the period of troubles and sectarian violence, which also affected men who were actually undergoing treatment for um, mental health problems. And again, it's this idea of, you know, even though the records don't articulated explicitly. It's this idea that this must have really had quite a damaging psychological impact on these men who returned home already suffering from, you know, psychological problems to return A to another war zone, but B where they could potentially or perceive themselves to be potential targets. And were people with physical disabilities treated differently? Yeah, well I think that's a really uh, interesting question. I think the first thing obviously looking at physical disabilities and one thing I uh, I try and stress more in my written research is just how much uh, disabilities is an individual experience, which obviously depends on uh, not only the individual himself, but also the family and friends and communities that it returns to. And it was a very subjective experience of disability, regardless of what the ailment was. However, obviously looking at broad patterns, which we have to do uh, or attempt to do as a historian, I would argue that physically disabled veterans, such as limblessness and gunshot wounds, never had their war sacrifice doubted in the same way that shell shock veterans did. So for example, obviously if you've got a missing leg or a missing arm or a gunshot wound to the face, it's obvious that you've got a more marked objective physical disability due to war service, whereas perceptions of weakness attached itself to invisible psychological injuries. And as I mentioned, despite the progress that had been made in the treatment of uh, shell shock veterans, mentally ill veterans, time and time again, you see this idea of, there's always that doubt that uh, you can't prove that your shell shock was due to the war in the same way that someone with a missing leg can do. And in my research into the archives of veterans and ministry pensions, both in Britain and in Ireland, you see time and time again, for example, employers being very reluctant to take on men mentally ill veterans. And this was due to the stigma at the time and this idea of um, perceived unpredictability and strangeness of the conditions. And so much so, and I found this really interesting, is the records of the Irish uh, veteran that I found he goes at great lengths to keep his pension a secret and he constantly stresses to um, assessment boards and to welfare officials he deals with to keep you know his condition in-house because he's worried that once it gets out there that people will treat him differently and he may suffer uh, in his employment so i think in a very broad answer i think physical disabilities such as the more objective kinds were more authentic and legitimized that maybe in a way that shell shock wasn't and did societal attitudes towards um, mentally ill ex-servicemen change um, significantly after 1923, when obviously there was a, there was partition and things had returned to a degree of peace in the south? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, looking at uh, shell shock 
in the initial post-war years, the British government made a real sustained effort to uh, research and treat shell shock and mental illness. But from 1923 onwards, they sort of take on the general theory that if you haven't recovered by then, then you're going to be um, probably mentally ill for the rest of your life. And they sort of pension veterans off for the rest of their lives without um, really divulging much uh, more treatment or research into the condition. And as a result of that, records sort of dry up for looking at uh, shell shock veterans beyond 1923. When looking at, when I was trying to look at um, mentally ill veterans in the Irish Free State, and I sort of had to broaden my um, methodology out slightly and incorporate um, the entire disabled community, ex-service community, and try and sort of get an essence of um, shell shock veterans through that wider lens. And I think when I was looking at the Irish Free State and how it treated um, British ex-servicemen. While stigma may still have exist and evidence of outright hostility and employment prejudices, uh, which were apparent during the Anglo-Irish War, it certainly seems to have died down post-1923. Indeed, what's really interesting is the fact that tens of thousands of British ex-servicemen actually enlisted in the Free States National Army, which helped to defeat the anti-treaty IRA. And these men, obviously, who'd served in the British Army, who then serve in the Free State National Army. It certainly disrupts this narrative that, you know, the, British ex-servicemen were just exclusively discriminated against and segregated because of the former war service. But again, we're looking at disabled veterans, this sort of line of employment and to re-enlist again was obviously um, an option that was cut off to them. And looking at disabled veterans when they returned to the, the Irish Free State post-1923, whilst this ev uh, evidence of discrimination and hostility appears to have died down, it's also true that they shared a really austere economic climate where unemployment was rife, and not only that, but societal sympathy for the sacrifice sacrifice rather, um, is much reduced, where there's time and time again you read the records and the primary records, and they um, suggest that the establishment of the Irish Free State wasn't because of the First World War, it was because of the Anglo-Irish War and because of the Irish Civil War. So the worthiness, worthiness of their sacrifice during the First World War isn't put on an even keel to me what the ex-comrades were in Britain. But here what's again really interesting is looking at the records of the Ministry of Pensions, even though veterans, disabled veterans in Ireland, in the Irish Free State rather, um, struggled for employment and recognition, the Ministry of Pensions and the British state continued to provide pensions and uh, treatment um, at the expense of the British Treasury throughout the, 19, uh, the 20th century rather. And actually looking at relative ratios of one-to-one one-to-one um, -one ratios rather payments for veterans in the Irish Free State was actually far higher than what was offered uh, to veterans in Scotland, England and Wales. So even though the Irish Free State was set up as a, as a distinct entity similar to a dominion within the British Empire and even though it had its own government and own treasury and things like that, actually the British Treasury and the British Ministry of Pensions remained in the Irish Free State it termed itself as an imperial obligation to continue looking after veterans. And I would argue that the, the help that they offered was maybe far more substantial than what is sometimes assumed. And I suppose this brings us on to my next question is what type of statutory or charitable support was available for these men who had mental health issues? Yeah, uh, I think the most important charity in this regard was the Ex-Service Welfare Society. And um, this is a charity today known as Combat Stress and is maybe... Um, well known as obviously the, the leading charity today, which helps uh, veterans uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. 
It was established as a result of the First World War um, and reading its records, archival records down in Surrey, you can see a quite active charitable body that offered substantial charitable grants, medical assessments and inpatient treatment, vocational treatment. It helped shell-shock men attain employment. It went on significant fundraising drives each year to help raise funds for, for shell-shock men and the families. Um, so undoubtedly the British Legion also helped, um, but this was more obviously of a, a broader association for all veterans. Um, so it assisted disabled mentally disabled veterans in the same way that it assisted the disabled community in the ex-service community and the families at large. What's really interesting about looking at the British Legion is it appears to have uh, been far less active in the Irish Free State. And it's quite difficult to understand why this is. Perhaps it was because with in the absence of conscription in Ireland, the ex-service community is much lower in the Irish Free State than, than uh, Britain. And in the absence of the uh, British Legion, which is consistently comes up with time and time again, that the veteran community are unhappy with even things such as the lack of um, adequate forms to fill out claims for the help is lacking in the Irish Free State, that the Southern Irish Loyalist Association takes much more of an active role and sort of replaces the British uh, Legion in the Irish Free State. And again, this hopefully uh, speaks to my wider ethos of research, which is the situation that happened in Britain with veterans was very different to the one in Ireland due to a myriad of socio-economic and political context. So what sort of quality of life did mentally, uh, mentally ill former veterans have in the 1920s, 30s and 40s? Here it's quite difficult to tell uh, due to the lack of surviving records. Um, so when I was looking at mentally ill men veterans' uh, pension records and welfare records, which are down in the National Archives, I was looking, uh, I'm not sure how many I looked at uh, specifically, but it was, I would estimate between 80 and 100. Um, and it was quite difficult to find. Uh, it was it, You could find Irish men or second generation Irish men, but largely men who returned to Britain. Um, the survival rate of pension records are largely centred on men who returned to London. Um, and I was, but I was quite lucky and able to be able to find one surviving file. And judging by this file, it seems that he had a very troubled life, which speaks to wider medical literature at the time, which speaks to the wider community. And reading his pension records and his medical records, he had uh, repeated bouts of depression, a heavy reliance on his wife to assist in his care and everyday function with obsessive thoughts. And this, these symptoms stayed with him until uh, he was an elderly man. And again, reading the records of the Ministry of Pensions and the medical establishment during the interwar period, they seemed to suggest that these sort of symptoms were, were apparent within the wider community. However, also having said that, despite his intense psychological problems, it's also mentioned in his records that he was able to attain employment, have a social life. He, for example, he was noted he was a keen golfer. And also on his return home, he became a father to three children and married. So again, it's this idea of this man who was in quite clearly judged to have severe psychological problems was also able to, to fashion, you know, a life that obviously had um, positive aspects to it. Oral histories in the later part of the 20th century um, in both Britain and Ireland, however, also repeatedly attest to single shell-shocked veterans seemingly living as destitutes, having quite outward um, symptoms of the mental torment who were often depended on alcohol or charity or food for shelter, um, often living on the streets or, you know, begging for, for public substance uh, on the street. With regards to those who ended up in asylum, again, it's very difficult to pigeonhole. Um, I argue in my research that 
a man, if you were, went into a district asylum, it very much depended on the asylum you were admitted into. So with regards to Irish asylums, some, and you were admitted into an asylum depending on whereabouts you lived and where you were born, some asylums, and these could be huge 500 bed facilities, some appear very humane and hospitable uh, institutions, which placed emphasis on patient care, whilst others seem to be real, um, for want of a better term, horror factories. Um, I found one asylum in Ireland where sharing with the pauper lunatic, um, as they were known at the time, population, the asylum was overcrowded, filthy, and a lack of recreation. And um, it was really, you know, to steal a contemporary phrase, postcode lottery, lottery and potluck on the conditions that an insane veteran would, would receive. And finally, Michael, where can people find out more about your research? Yeah, I have a, a monograph due for publication, which was taken from a PhD, um, which I've been working on for the last year. Uh, and that's due for publication with Manchester University Press as part of their disability history series. And that's due in January next year. I also have an article called Nobody's Children, which looks at the treatment of disabled veterans in the Irish Free State. And that's with Irish Studies Review. And coming up at some point this year, I'm just waiting to hear the confirmation date. I've got an upcoming article with War and History, um, and that's analysing the Ministry of Pensions treatment of shell-shocked British and Irish veterans in interwar society. Michael, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.